When you hear the term born-again Christian, what immediately comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear those words, born-again Christian? Do you have fond feelings, positive emotions? Maybe you think about Billy Graham crusades, people turning to Jesus, holiness, life transformation. Or does it feel icky and judgmental, hypocritical? Maybe, maybe your mind immediately connects the words born-again with a political party or a certain movement of individuals. So you don't use those words because they don't, you don't want to associate with those people. I grew up in what I would describe as a hyper-conservative, yet a, a pretty charismatic family. And, and what I understood as a child, and, and I don't know that anyone specifically told me this, it was maybe more an unsaid written code, but what I understood as a child is that there were Christians and then there were born-again Christians. And I'm not sure exactly what the difference was between us born-again Christians and those ordinary Christians. Maybe we spoke in tongues and they didn't, or we were committed to holiness and they were sort of lukewarm. But all I knew is that to be born-again was kind of like this leveling up of your Christianity. I should say, there's, there's lots about my childhood and the way I was raised that, that I'm incredibly thankful for. I, I memorized a lot of scripture, I learned a lot of great Christian values and disciplines and built a strong foundation to my faith. But there was also some things like this doctrine of being born again that as an adult I've looked back on and I'm kind of like, mm, I'm not sure that was quite it. The passage of scripture that we're going to explore today is from John chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn there right now, John chapter 3. And in our text, we're going to see this conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And in this conversation, Jesus tells this religious teacher that if there's any hope of him seeing and experiencing the kingdom of God, his only hope is to be born again. Let's read the text together. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform these signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I love this story, this, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's probably one of my favorite encounters that Jesus has in all of John's Gospels. And as I spent time reading and exploring these verses over the last week in preparation for this message, I, I became more and more fascinated by this conversation. Fascinated by what we learn about Jesus and his kingdom and what it actually means to follow him. 
Let me set the stage for, for what's going on here in this text that we just read. Jesus is growing in popularity. He's turned water into wine. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's doing signs and wonders. He's teaching in the synagogues and crowds are beginning to follow him everywhere he goes. And there's many who are amazed and, and intrigued by Jesus, who are, who are beginning to embrace this way of life that he teaches. They're beginning to embrace his teaching as truth. But one group that's not having it, who are anti-Jesus of Nazareth, so to speak, are the Pharisees. And who are these Pharisees? Well, the word Pharisee comes from the root word paras, which means separated or divided. And the Pharisees used this word to describe themselves because they saw themselves as the separated ones, exclusively belonging to God, committed to following the Torah, obeying the commandments. Even in an already religious law-keeping culture, the Pharisees saw themselves as clean because of the way they kept the law. They lived with this all-consuming religious commitment. Larry Osborne, who's a, a teacher and a pastor, he says this about the Pharisees. He said, Pharisees excelled in everything we admire spiritually. They were zealous for God, completely committed to their faith. They were theologically astute, masters of the biblical text. They fastidiously, what a fantastic word, fastidiously obeyed even the most obscure commands. They even made up extra rules just in case they were missing anything. Their embrace of spiritual disciplines was second to none. And I point this out because we, when we hear the word Pharisee, many of us, especially if you've grown up in church, we think of narrow-minded, stone-throwing haters. And certainly some sections of scripture, you know, they've earned this reputation. But what gets lost in this understanding of Pharisee is what Larry Osborne points out, that these Pharisees actively lived out many of the spiritual practices that we strive to embody. Scripture reading, Sabbath keeping, prayer. The problem was, the problem was that along the way, they forgot the most important thing, which is love. Pharisees prided themselves in being close to God because of the way they followed his law and his commandments because they were separated from the world or anything that resembled the world. And then comes this Jesus of Nazareth who sort of flips the ideology on its head and points to this different way. He doesn't say that following the law is bad. No, not at all. But he says that obedience to the law, religious observation in itself is not enough. Look at Luke 18, 10 to 14. Jesus shares this story. He says, two men went out into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, prayed this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See why many of the, the Pharisees hated Jesus? He's completely flipping the script on who's in and who's out. So verse one of our text in John three, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus is this Pharisee, but not only that, he's not just an ordinary Pharisee, he's also a ruler, a political figure of sorts. He has social and religious power, he has wealth and respectability. And later in chapter three, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. And so many Bible scholars have pointed out that Nicodemus is among the most elite of Pharisees. 
And to achieve that type of status, Nicodemus has worked his way up the ladder. He's educated, he's respected, he's highly esteemed among the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. But unlike the other Pharisees who despise this Jesus of Nazareth, Nicodemus is intrigued. And maybe he begins to see lines that are drawn from the prophets and the prophecies of old, fulfilled in this rabbi, this teacher named Jesus. Maybe it's that, he, that his love, that the love that he sees in Jesus just exuding off of him is so compelling. The compassion he has as he heals the sick and cares for the poor and marginalized. Maybe it's this, this subversive teachings that are beginning to challenge the status quo understanding of God that he has been taught as a child and that he's been teaching in the synagogues. Either way, Nicodemus decides to go and meet this Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. But in order to avoid crowds, maybe to maintain his reputation, he comes once it's dark, late in the evening, when it's much less likely that he's going to be seen questioning and learning from this, this one, this person who his friends and fellow Pharisees are calling a cult leader. He's willing to be challenged and, and to challenge everything he's built his life on, but he needs to be sure. He still has some questions. Leslie Newbigin noted, you know, Nicodemus is a man who is drawn to the light, but is not yet ready to leave the darkness. So it's late in the evening and Nicodemus comes to where Jesus is, pulls him aside to where no one else is. Maybe they're sitting at an old wooden table, some stools, a torch lighting the area where they meet. And Nicodemus opens the conversation like this. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher. And, and even this address shows honor. Because in, in, in order to be called rabbi in Jewish culture, you worked your way up through the ranks and you studied under rabbis and teachers of the law. And Jesus hadn't done that. He was a carpenter by trade. But Nicodemus, the rabbi of rabbis, he sees something in Jesus. He sees this teachings that he has. He sees the miracles that he's doing. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus starts the conversation with some affirmation, almost some flattery. And it's likely as, as the conversation begins that Nicodemus begins this conversation believing he's the one in the seat of power because he is in, in most rooms that he enters. He's the teacher of Israel, an authority among the people. Maybe he thinks to himself, even as he approaches Jesus, you know, maybe he thinks, if, if this guy is who I think he is, if he is the Messiah, I'll, I'll use my influence and authority to help him get some better press. I'll explain his position more clearly and eloquently to the Sanhedrin. I'll, I'll make his parables a little less controversial, more relevant and palatable to the religious elites. But notice Jesus isn't impressed by Nicodemus's position of power and influence. Check out Jesus' response. He says, very truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus is confused. How can a man be born when he is old? And at first he takes this metaphor from Jesus literally, but even uh, as he begins to understand it as a symbol of what needs to happen in the human heart, he's still not quite sure what it is that Jesus is talking about. And I don't think we fully understand the offensive nature of what Jesus was saying, you know, living as Christians on this side of history. He's speaking to a man who believes he already is born and circumcised into the people of God. He and all the other Jewish people believe they already were by birth and heritage the people of God. And so maybe a paraphrase of what Nicodemus is saying here to Jesus is, is you know, Jesus, you're pointing me in the wrong direction. I want to know how to move forward, not how to go backwards and start all over again. Maybe he's saying, you know, what's wrong with the distance I've already come? Why are you suggesting a whole new beginning? Yes, beginners need to start from the beginning, if that's what you mean by born. But do the advanced? Do the Pharisees? 
See, these instructions that were, were made to Nicodemus, they maybe would feel more logical, sensical, if Jesus was in a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well or with someone caught in sin, maybe Mary Magdalene or, or Matthew, the tax collector who's been robbing people from their hard-earned money. Of course, they needed to start over, but Nicodemus, isn't he like at least 80% of the way there? He's got his lifestyle down. He's obedient to the law. He's memorized scripture. Can't he just take one or two more spiritual steps in the right direction? But no, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, if you want to see and experience the kingdom of God, there isn't any new strategy you can deploy, adding more rules and laws. That's not going to help you this time. You and every human being who wants to experience the kingdom of God needs to not only be made better, but need to be made new. You need a whole new origin. Let's keep reading verse five. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and, and we hear its sound, but we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And there's so much there that, I, that I'd love to unpack. But let's start by looking at this idea of being born again and connecting being born again with seeing and entering the kingdom of God. Okay, I'm gonna nerd out here for a sec and I wanna trace this idea of being born again through the New Testament writings as well as through the ancient world. And some of you might love this background context we're gonna explore and some could probably care less. But try to stay with me because I think it's gonna be helpful in understanding what it is that Jesus is saying in this text about rebirth and the kingdom of God. It was a Bible teacher named Dominic Dunn who really helped me to understand this. And so, so see, this, this idea of being born again, it, it wouldn't have been an entirely new concept in the first century. Jesus certainly brings new meaning to the concept, but the Greco-Romans already had this word called palagenesia, which comes from two Greek words, palin, which, which means again, and genesis, which means birth. So literally translated, uh, that Greek word palagenesia is new birth or renewal, recreation, or you might say born again. In the West, we generally see history as linear on a timeline from where we were to where we're going. Where we're, we're, we talk about progress. Where many of the first century Greek philosophers taught of life as being more circular. They taught history goes around in a circular kind of motion and it goes around and then it's usually disrupted by an event, a rebirth, a recreation, and then it goes around again and it's reborn. It's palagonesia. Maybe somewhat similar in a sense to reincarnation. It was a birth that happens multiple times throughout history and kind of resets things in a sense. But here's something I found really interesting. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus borrows this Greek word palagonesia and he says in verse 28, he says that at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will inherit eternal life. That phrase, at the renewal of all things, in the original language, Jesus uses that Greek word palagonesia. And Jesus is essentially saying palagonesia is a thing, the Greeks are onto something, but it's not a circular motion that happens multiple times over. It happens at a specific time, and that specific time is when I return, the second coming of Jesus. And when that recreation happens, everything that's wrong with the world will be made right. There'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sorrow, no more disease, no more war, no more relational turmoil. It will be the consummation of a new age, the age to come. That's palagonesia. God is taking a broken world and rebirthing it. 
Now, Paul takes it a step further and he says in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, he says, Jesus saves us not, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Notice these words that Paul uses. They're, they're very similar to the words we just read in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Check it out. If you have your Bible open in front of you to John chapter 3, both of them are talking about water and rebirth and the Holy Spirit. Which passage do you think Paul likely had in mind when he's writing to Titus? Well, most likely John chapter 3. And not only that, but also the words that Jesus says in Matthew 19, because Paul says Jesus saves us through the washing of rebirth. And in writing that, he's, he's using this word that Jesus uses. He uses the word palagonesia. So Jesus says that the renewal, that recreation, palagonesia, will happen at a specific moment upon his second coming. And then Paul says yes to that, but also he says that it's going to happen at one other moment, and that's when a person is born again. That the future kingdom that will begin upon Jesus' second coming is foreshadowed in human lives as they're born again and experience the kingdom reality in the here and now. When you're born again, you begin to experience, at least in part, what God will one day reveal in full. Which means that you begin to live into the new reality of the kingdom of God, not when you die and go to heaven, but right now in the present age when you're born again. You're invited into this new reality to experience intimacy with God. You begin to see him at work all around you and you, and you even get to partner with him in the restorative work on the earth. And as you do, your life becomes this signpost to those who are wandering, a signpost of God's redemptive plan and restorative work. And as you live into this new reality and, and you love people and you forgive people and you fight for justice and redemption, when you do these things, you're putting on display the beauty of the reality of God's future kingdom. It happens through palagonesia, through rebirth. See, so being born again is, is so much more than praying a prayer and going to heaven when you die. To be born again is to be invited into this renewing work, into relationship with God himself. You don't just say a prayer and then wait around on earth until you die so that you can get to heaven. No, as John Orberg says, eternity is now in session. Eternal life begins when we give our lives to Christ and we become citizens of this new kingdom under the rule and reign of King Jesus. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, said this, referring to what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. He said, what you do in the present by painting and preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day that we leave it all behind altogether. They're part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Okay, so we've explored this idea of the kingdom of God, being born again, palagonesia, experiencing the future age in the present. But how does it all come about? How do we actually achieve it? How do we become reborn? Nicodemus, in this story, he's, he's looking for what he needs to do to achieve eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God. It's drilled into him from a young age as a Pharisee, this, you know, that his acceptance before God is reliant on his ability to perform, to keep the law, to be holy. And, and I get that. As an Enneagram 3, I am always trying to figure out how to win. What do I need to do to achieve the desired results? How do I please others? But Jesus seems to say that the very thing that Nicodemus needs in this case is something that he actually can't do for himself. He needs to be born again. 
And think about it, does a child do anything in order to be born? No, of course not. If you've ever given birth or, or been in the room when someone's having a baby or, or maybe you've watched one of those absolutely traumatic birthing films in school or in prenatal class, either way, in, in any of those scenarios, it's pretty clear, it's pretty obvious that it's not the baby who's doing all the work, it's the mother. The baby's brought into the world by the mother's labor. The baby's brought into the world by the mother's pain. It's the mother who carried all that extra weight for all those months of pregnancy. The baby is born because someone else carried the weight. Someone else has taken the pain. The mother's blood was spilled so the baby could be born. In some ways, I think this analogy from Jesus doesn't have the full effect on us because of the age of hospitals and pain medication and epidurals. But in the first century, giving birth was a pretty horrific experience. It was shockingly common for mothers even to die in the process of giving birth. Are you starting to see the parallel between the mother in this analogy and Jesus? In John chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus himself says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. This phrase, that the time has come, it's used a number of times throughout John's writing to refer to Jesus' death on the cross. Remember the story where Jesus turns water into wine in, in John? Jesus says to his mother, my time has not yet come. He's referring to his time to go to the cross where he would bear our sin and our shame, where he would give his life so we could be restored, renewed, reborn. And just, just as John 16 speaks of a mother's joy after labor, as she looks at her child in the eyes and, and sees that it was all worth it, the author of Hebrews writes, for the joy set before him, speaking of Jesus, he endured the cross. Jesus would die in his labor. He would die in his blood. And yet he had this great joy, even in his pain and suffering, because his death, brutal and gruesome as it was, made a way for us, restored us, and made us right with God. To be born again is something that Jesus does in us through a work of the Spirit. And then in the last few verses of our passage, Jesus refers to this story from the book of Numbers. This is a story that Nicodemus would have known well. Let's take a look at it together. Verse 13. It says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, so this, this passage is referring back to Numbers 21, where the people of Israel, they're wandering in the desert and they're in rebellion against God. Many of them have been bitten by poisonous serpents, the, the venom from the snakes, it represents their sin and, and the sin that's destroying them. And in their misery, they confess their sins. They plead to Moses and to God for relief. And so God gives Moses some interesting instructions. He says, make a bronze servant and mount it to a pole, raise it up for the people. He tells Moses that, that the people who are sick, who've been stung by this venomous snake, simply need to look at the bronze snake mounted on the pole and they will be saved. They'll live. And this was good because many were so sick and dying that the only thing they were even capable of doing was to turn their heads in the direction of the snake and look at it. And then instantly God heals them. Kind of a strange story in Israel's history, but Jesus says that this is a picture-perfect parable. It's, it's a preview of sorts of the way that God has determined to reconcile the world to himself. This was a foreshadowing of a much grander story of redemption, not only for the Israelite people in a single time and place in history, but a rescue mission for all people in all time. See, Jesus was hoisted up on a cross. 
And like the people of Israel who had to look at the snake so that they could live, Jesus says, all we have to do to experience this rebirth, all we have to do to find freedom from our sin is to look to the Son, is to turn our heads to the direction of the Son of God, to put our trust in the one who hung up there on the tree, who already paid the price, who already did the heavy lifting and labored for our freedom. And all we need to do in order to be saved, in order to be born again, is to look to the Son. The book of John gives us reason to believe that Nicodemus' life was absolutely changed by this conversation with Jesus. He, he's quiet in the end of this passage, in the end of this conversation, maybe just listening and reflecting on all that Jesus has said, trying to understand. But Nicodemus surfaces two other times in the book of John. The first is in John chapter 7, where the Jewish leaders are beginning to plan and scheme against Jesus. They're just not loving all that he's doing. And Nicodemus defends Jesus in front of all his peers. He says these words, Does our law convict a man without first hearing from him and determining what he has done? And he gets laughed off and dismissed, and, and they carry on with their plans against Jesus. But can you see his heart and his commitment to Jesus growing, even with those few words? Then the last time Nicodemus is mentioned is in chapter 19, at the near end of the gospel account. Jesus has just been crucified, and, and then in verse 38 it says, Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him remove the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. And catch this, Nicodemus, who had previously come to Jesus at night, also brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So they took the body of Jesus, they wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices according to the Jewish burial customs. The taking down of, of bodies and preparing them for burial was a job that was typically done by slaves or by women at this time in history. This wasn't something that a rich, influential male leader of the people would be caught doing. There was this just so far below him, so far below his status. It would have been almost embarrassing. But what causes this man of power and wealth and prestige, this leader of the Jews, what causes him to take this lowly role, preparing the pierced body of Jesus for burial? Well, allegedly, he's looked to the Son. He's recognized Jesus as Lord, and his wealth, his position, his power no longer means, as, means to him what it once did. Nicodemus has seen all of this unfold. Jesus tells him he needs to be born again, that the Son of Man will be lifted up. And maybe as Nicodemus looks out from the crowd and sees Jesus, the perfect Son of God, hanging on the cross, lifted up, hanging there for all to see, it all starts to make sense. And he doesn't know exactly what's to come as far as resurrection from the dead. He doesn't know how God is going to redeem this story. It's a little confusing at the moment, but he knows that this man is more than just a great rabbi, more than just a great teacher. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would come to save God's people. And he would be hoisted on a cross. Nicodemus may still have some questions, but his loyalties lie with Jesus. I'll end with this. Right after our text in, in verse 16 of chapter 3, we, we get to the most quoted scripture verse of all time. A highly quoted verse. It's a beautiful verse though. John 3, 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. See, it was the love of God that compelled him to send Jesus to the cross. It was the love of God that compelled him to make a way. It was the love of God that compelled him to come to earth, to put on flesh. And, and, and so today, my challenge for you is simple. Just look to the sun. If you don't know this Jesus, but like Nicodemus, you're intrigued. You want this life, this freedom, this forgiveness from sin that Jesus offers. All you have to do is look to the sun, this trust in him, 
Give him your allegiance and you will be saved. And as this text says, you'll be born again, invited into the kingdom of God. It's as simple as fixing your gaze on him, looking to the cross and accepting the substitution of his labor, his blood, his death on your behalf. And to those of us who are already followers of Jesus, I believe this text also calls us to look to the Son every day, to not look to our own righteousness, our ability to perform, our perceived ability to be made right with God on our own by cleaning ourselves up or by being good. Like Jesus tells Nicodemus in this text, something, something I think we need to be reminded is this simple gospel truth that our worth and our position before God isn't founded on our good works or our lack of good works. It's solely based on what he has done for us by his spirit. And the good works we do aren't to earn our salvation, but instead are a response to salvation. So we return to the foot of the cross. We recognize that on our own, we were just bankrupt sinners, that even our best efforts couldn't save us, but God in his mercy sent his son, that if we simply look to him, we're saved. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this great truth, this profound truth, this reality of, of being born again and this invitation into the kingdom of God, not only in the future, but even now, in the here and in the now. So I just pray for, for the things that I've shared today that are from your heart, that those would fall on good soil today, that we would hear it, that we would meditate on those truths and that they would, they would, they would find good soil in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. Continue the great work you started in us. It's in your name we pray, amen.